Welcome everyone to the Nerd Journey Podcast, episode number 162. We're joining you every week to talk IT career progression and bring you the advice we wish we'd been given earlier in our careers. I am not your host, John White, at VJourneyman on Twitter, but rather his co-host, Nick Cordy, at NetworkNerd underscore. We are both pre-sales technical engineers with backgrounds in IT operations. We hope our career discussions will be vendor neutral, relevant across disciplines, and remain timeless. If you're enjoying our content, please drop us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you subscribe. And if you want to get in touch with us, tweet or DM at Nerd Journey. Ultimately, we're just two nerds on a journey to career enlightenment. So let's take a trip. Today begins a new series of interviews. I know that's shocking. This time, it's going to be a trilogy. Our guest for this series of interviews is Louise Bunyan, and we're going to follow her career journey through a lot of different changes that I think will be super helpful to you. In this first episode, we're going to talk about talent marketing. Louise currently works as part of a talent marketing team. We'll share with you what it is, where it fits into the hiring process for big and for small companies, and how that works with employer branding. Now, I'll just say as a disclaimer, she does work for VMware. But I think it's super interesting to see the evolution of the hiring process that you're going to hear about in this interview. And I imagine that other large tech companies have done the same thing with their hiring process as they've moved forward through the great resignation and, and over the years. It was really interesting to me to hear about the changes in the hiring process that have taken place since Louise joined. I think you'll find that super helpful. But we'll also go back to the beginning. Louise started as an events assistant, and you'll find that she made a super interesting move and took a voluntary redundancy package, relocated to another country, and pursued an entirely different career. How exactly does that happen? And through all this, you'll find that she developed a love for digital marketing that shines through throughout this series. Without further ado, let's go for it with part one of our interview with Louise Bunyan. Louise Bunyan, thanks so much for joining us on Nerd Journey. Thanks, Nick. I'm delighted to be here. Can you start by sharing with our listeners a, a little bit about what you do and who you are? Sure. So I'm a talent marketing specialist with VMware. So I'm part of the global employment brand team and I work remotely and I'm based in County Cork in Ireland. I also have a side hustle business called SmartFox, where I specialize in LinkedIn training for job seekers and students and sales and business development professionals. So I set that up in 2017 and I have around 15 years of experience in communications, PR, marketing, both offline and online. And in my free time, I write creative fiction, I blog and I'm a published short story writer. Wow, that's a lot of experience. We appreciate your willingness to share that with everyone out there in the community. Tell me a little bit about why organizations want to do talent marketing, because I had not heard of this type of role before we met. Mm, um, okay, so I suppose it would be 
more common in, in quite large organizations. So if you think VMware has around 37,000 employees globally. Um, so talent marketing is, it's, I suppose employer branding would be kind of the more well known term. And that began to get quite popular, I'd say around 10 years ago. And like competing for talent is, is tough and it's, it's getting more and more difficult. And I know we have this phrase, the great resignation at the moment, but even before that, um, especially let's say in the line of work that you do, you know, solution engineer, um, you're kind of like gold dust. So VMware has to, has to work really hard to, to try and get people, you know, to, to apply, you know, for those top talent roles. And we're competing with other mega brands like for that talent. And I suppose the whole thing with talent marketing and employer branding is that we're always trying to position, um, our employer like as a great place to work and as an employer of choice. And we're always trying to, to attract top talent to apply to the company. So you may be a great place to work, but if nobody knows about that, then you're going to find it a real struggle to try and attract that top talent that you need. So like I'm a marketer, you know, anybody who kind of works in employer branding would be predominantly a marketer but let's say in some smaller organizations um it might be shared between HR and marketing but VMware is very lucky in that we have a a completely separate employment brand team oh wow and you're marketing through social media blogging several different things right even video sometimes right yeah, so we're really lucky with our team. I mean, we have great tools and great initiatives. So I would specialize in uh, email marketing platform in particular. So it's kind of a talent marketing database, also known as just a talent community. And um, so the name of that product is Beamery. So I, I, I can say we have over a million um, uh, contacts in that database. Um, so that's people who have applied previously to VMware. They might have registered to attend one of our um, careers meetup LinkedIn live events, um, or they might have just um, registered their details like on, on our careers website. So they've voluntarily given us their details and their CV. So that was predominantly a big part um, of my role when I joined back in January. And now I also um, co-own our careers blog as well. So I'm, I'm doing a lot of work on that. We have a new great section called the Insight Scoop. So Nick, you know, you kindly wrote a fantastic article for that. So we do have great plans for the Insight Scoop to, to ask our recruiters and our sourcers and our TA and thought leaders to give really practical um, solutions and kind of um, their expert insights into um, how to get hired at VMware as well. Um, I mentioned we do a lot of LinkedIn lives um, and they're always recorded. So you can pop onto our LinkedIn page and go to the events tab and watch them at any time. And then outside of that, um, we we partner with, we support our um, colleagues right across TA. So we're a global team. Um, everybody TA is talent acquisition, right? Yes, so talent acquisition. Okay. Yes, um, and then we so we would partner with loads of different teams, um, and university talent would be quite like a really active team as well. So anybody that that has um, a really important like hiring need, you know, they they've tried reaching out on LinkedIn to thousands of people. 
they're they're not getting very far then they might come over to us and we would look at how can we write a blog how can we do a linkedin live and how can we utilize uh beamery and the expertise that we have around that to to try and help them out as much as we can for them to to drive up their applications and, and meet their hiring goals and they're working more directly with the applicants than someone like yourself right Yes. So I suppose my job really is, I think of it as the top of the funnel. So our job is to, um, it's all about brand awareness. So, you know, if you went to an event and you say, I work for VMware, what's the reaction going to be like? Oh, I've heard of you guys, you know, or well, typically yes. Um, or like you're a great place to work and so on. So that's kind of our job would be to drive brand awareness, to drive the promotion of VMware as a company as a place to work, as a company, um, as an employer of choice. So once we kind of get people to apply or once we, um, you know, dry sign up to events, in my mind, we actually kind of pass the work on to who's next in the pipeline. Um, so that would be our recruiters and our sourcers then to, to kind of take up the lead and do the next part of the process in the hiring and recruitment process. Oh, that's so interesting. And in smaller organizations, I imagine all those things would be smushed up and maybe fall into HR's plate or if they have a recruitment team internally. Yes. Um, so it, I suppose it depends on the skills and the expertise um, in that team. So I've worked with some HR people and they're amazing. They're very comfortable on social media um and and they can promote and they can drive and i've worked with some people who aren't that comfortable um like hr managers let's say and that's maybe when the, if you have a digital marketer in house then they almost kind of need to come along and and post you know be responsible like for the content for the posting of it and probably building a careers page on the website you know if if there even is that so if you don't have that at the moment in your small organization and you are trying to to hire um that's a huge thing and also just having a portal or an email address or something where people can um just send you their cv or their resume that's that's huge as well but of course you can't just let it sit there you know the the beauty of that would be that somebody would be reviewing the cvs and and would kind of have a short list of like top people that they would get back to as well. Yeah, and the careers page is a great resource for external applicants looking for jobs. I mean, especially in this market, looking at the careers page of an organization you're interested in working at, doesn't matter what it is, hopefully the opens, openings are up to date with, with job requirements. And, you know, even some that I've seen will allow you to set up notifications if a new job is posted or a new job in a specific area, mm -hmm. if it's IT, if it's marketing, if it's financial services, what are those things that lets you interact with the brand and the site? Hopefully it's a good experience through the careers page because that's kind of the first touch into your interaction with that organization if you've never worked there before. Yeah. A view into the culture, maybe. Exactly. And just, um, as you said, giving an insight into the culture. Is there like a little, a video? Not necessarily from the CEO, because we know that, that kind of the higher 
up you are in the chain, the less that kind of resonates. People want to see somebody who, somebody like me, you know, that's what we say. I want to see somebody like myself. I want to see like a regular employee. And we also know a subject matter expert will hold a lot of um, credibility as well. Um, and benefits, you know, at the end of the day, like, what am I going to get? Um, if I move like to your company or why would I be attracted to your company? And again, that changes with with where you are in your life. So, you know, young graduates want to see like career progression, you know, a lot of um, kind of, you know, how we look after the world, you know, the environment, that's uh, very important. Uh, whereas I suppose when you get a bit older and if you're either looking at a mortgage or you have more responsibilities and family and sometimes work-life balance, you know, we were talking about wellness benefit that VMware give, all your insurance, how you're going to look after me as an employee, that becomes more important. So we we, we have like our personas, we have, you know, our different um, kind of target markets. It's just like trying to sell a product or a service, but we're just trying to um, sell VMware as a great place to work. And it is a great place to work. So um, it's, it's, it's a great job as well. Those LinkedIn live sessions that you mentioned before, that's open to anyone, right? And it's general career advice. It's not necessarily how to get a job at VMware, right? It's just, let me give you some general career tips. Yeah. So, um, well, my team would work on two. So one is um, the careers meetup. Um, and the other one is called the joy of innovation. And uh, the careers meetup, we started partnering with different teams. So a couple of months ago, we would have done one for um, Amer Sales organization um so that was great we had um three three people from like different um different kind of levels of seniority just really giving an insight into what it's all about how it works uh the type of people you know that we're looking for and and how that recruitment process works i suppose just to kind of empower people um anybody who's thinking of applying just to kind of give them that information and, and actually hear from three different uh, people in that organization so that works really 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 well and then we had one specifically for talent acquisition so we're, we're trying to hire recruiters we're trying to hire sourcers globally um and so we decided why not so we interviewed um three people one kent button who is um our ta leader and um so that went really well as well so if if you if you follow the LinkedIn company page with the LinkedIn lives now, you just get a notification when there is a live before you might have to kind of register. But now they've changed all of that LinkedIn have. So you'll, you'll just get notification. So sometimes we could have five or six hundred people um, on one of our LinkedIn lives, but we would have over a million followers on the LinkedIn company page. So that that's why we're getting those types of numbers. So they're, they are free for anybody to attend. They are short and sweet, around 35 minutes max. Um, we pack it full of like really, really good information. Um, our, our mission really is to empower um, anybody to apply to VMware and give an insight and, and to put real people, our real team members in front of people. And also, if you miss one, all you have to do is pop over to the LinkedIn page, company page, click on events, and you can watch the replay 
anytime you want. So it's kind of on demand. So they're great. And we love doing them because we get like really good interaction with um, people all over the world. And I imagine that other companies are doing something similar in, in that same light. So you could probably find that from other organizations that you might be interested if you're listening to this. I really like the fact that we're sharing what the interview process is like because depending on the company, you may not know. And some people have written blog articles about how in the great resignation, their interview process just never ends or it, it got longer. I think in some cases it probably got shorter because there are it's a hot job market. But understanding the process you're about to go through, maybe it's four rounds or five rounds, if you don't know that going into it, you may not be mentally prepared and, and have your thoughts organized to go through a process like that. Oh, absolutely. And the candidate experience is key. It, it, it's core to like everything that we do. And just for anybody listening, we have a different type of interview process. It's called Go Hiring. So GO is guided by outcomes. And it's a, it's a new type of hiring methodology developed by uh, um, a guy called Nate Anderson. He, he's kind of like the lead designer. And it's like I was interviewed. So, you know, I joined VMware back in January and um, my interview process was one of the first ones to have used the Go Hiring uh, approach. And it's quite practical. Um, we we hire on performance, not on pedigree. That that's a lovely line that Nate uses. So we know that that we need like top talent, um, and so we're not adhering as much to very strict, you know, criteria around like you must have this amount of years of experience or you must have this, or you must have that. We're kind of moving away from that. And so the interview stages, um, they're all very practical. And depending on what role that you might have, you might get like um, a little mini project to do at home. And then um, as an interviewer, you're you're given like um, very practical questions to kind of look at the, the thought process behind a piece of work or how the candidate approaches a piece of work as well. Um, so I was hired um, using that approach and I found it great. And the job description is was very, very, very different. Um, and it was like, what's expected of you in your first three months, your first six months, your first nine months. And it has a little paragraph at the end about the hiring manager if they so wish, you know, to put that in as well. So before Price interviewed me, I actually had a real feel, you know, I was just like, wow, this is amazing. And now I did think because I was hiring for like a talent marketing role, I was like, oh, I wonder is this now specifically just, you know, for talent marketers? Is is this just an approach that they're using just for us? But it's not, it's, it's going to be company-wide and there's a lot of transparency around that, you know, about what, how many rounds there are, who will be interviewing you, because, um, you know, we get, we ask for feedback, um, from candidates after interviews and we have a net promoter score that we use to measure that as well. So that's all very, very important. And that's like baked into the process. I like that. Rather than adhering to strict requirements of, you must meet these qualifications. We need experience in Windows, Linux, VMware, Hyper-V, all the things, preferably 10 years of experience in a similar role. It sounds like the job requirement was extremely different in the here's what you need to expect within your first year of work. And I like the fact that hiring managers are even putting 
information about themselves. That's kind yeah. of cool. That's that's optional now. I have to to, to stress that. Um, but I think like Nate describes it really, really, really well. And his when he's explaining it, he's saying um, he has a picture of a river, and he was like, you know, come up with a solution to get across the river. And ninety nine point nine percent of people will build a bridge. But he's saying that there are many ways to get across the river. It could be a hot air balloon. You know, it could be a boat. If the water is shallow enough, you could walk across. So by defining very prescriptive job specs or job descriptions, you're not kind of looking at how the person can do the job or the work that's required to complete the job and do the job quite well. You're saying, well, we're looking for a bridge builder, but you're not. You're looking at how to get across the water. Yeah. That's a great point. And it sounds like it would allow someone with a lot of relatable experience in a different area that could be applied to something new that maybe they haven't done before. Yeah, absolutely. And it it just kind of, it frees us up, you know, from those, from those very defined and um, prescriptive elements. And like a massive element of this as well is, you know, DE&I, and, and just kind of moving away from those quite rigid job specs. And like we know from research that like women are more inclined to apply um, when they meet 100% of the requirements. Whereas and research has shown this that like men are, are typically more inclined to apply if they meet around 60 to 70% of their requirements. So if you have like must have 10 years, must know all these tools who are more inclined to apply for that job. And who are less inclined to apply for that job. Oh, wow. That's extremely interesting. So speaking of experience in the interview process and, and all those things, I want to go into the career time machine for a second, Louise, and backtrack and figure out how you got to where you are. Because some of that experience you mentioned at the beginning is going to be key. In your early career, you actually did some teaching, if memory serves. You were an events assistant, I think, and then you moved into the public sector, but but you decided to retrain, right? Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes. Um, so, okay, in college, I did media communications and geography, and then I did a postgrad in public relations and event management. And then, yeah, I was an events assistant um, in Dublin city center for a very well-known restaurant. And it was in what we call the Celtic Tiger when Irish people had loads and loads of money and we lost the run of ourselves. <laughs> we didn't know what to do with ourselves. So that was a very exciting time. Um, and then I moved into the public sector because uh, I wanted like, you know, a good job, proper job, sensible job. So then what happened after the Celtic Tiger and um, the Ireland, the Irish economy entered um, a really severe recession in 2008. So at that time, I was working for a government body called Pubble. It's an Irish word. And basically, they manage government funding for community development projects. So, you know, that year it was a very strange time. It was very uncertain. And just the, the economic climate was just full of fear, anxiety and panic. So I would have been like in my late 20s. So I was OK. You know, I didn't have a mortgage. I didn't have kids. Um, I could kind of stay in Dublin and just work. It was fine. But then Pubble began to offer very attractive um, voluntary redundancy packages. 
and um, really attractive, like when, when you're 28, 29. So I opted eventually, um, I opted for a package. And as I say, I got a lot of money to leave my job. So as a 29 year old, why wouldn't you? So then I, I decided I was going to go to New Zealand. Now, a lot of Irish people do go to Australia and New Zealand because we can get one year working holiday visas. And I had oh, a few nice. friends. Yeah. So I had a few friends over there and it is a very popular place for Irish people. But I decided I was going to get the one year working holiday visa, but I didn't want to work in a bar. I didn't want to work in a restaurant. So a friend of mine told me about her friend who had done this course called CELTA, which is Cambridge English Language Teaching to Adults. So I don't know if you heard of like TEFL, like teaching English as a foreign language. So there are like different kind of courses you can do. So you could do a weekend course and be qualified, but you're going to end up teaching in a really dodgy schools because they don't look for higher qualifications. So I said I would do the Salto one, the Cambridge one. Um, so that's a month and it was very, very, very intense. Um, but when you come out of it, you have a good qualification and you have a better chance to get into like proper kind of schools. So I kind of had that in my back pocket and I actually bought a one-way ticket to New Zealand because I didn't know if I was going for three months or six months or 12 months. So I got over there and I just backpacked around this hop on, hop off bus tour. So I did that for about maybe two months, all the North Island, all the South Island. Then I got back to Auckland and I knew two people in Auckland and I stayed with them for a little while and I handed out my CV to schools and there's a beautiful school around the corner which was in a big park called Kaplan Auckland uh, International and I understand Kaplan is a big um, education kind of franchise in America so beautiful school and then they offered me a couple hours and then I got more hours and then two years later I came home. So you took was this a I'm taking everything I own with me with the one way ticket or did you leave an apartment or residence of some sort behind for a while? No, I was renting in Dublin. So I suppose I would have moved out and uh, brought, I suppose, my poor parents. I brought all my stuff down to my parents and I went with two suitcases, a small little carry on suitcase and a bigger one. And that was it. It's very freeing, actually. You know, you, you, you're literally like <laughs> like a, a tortoise. You have your 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 home on your back, and that's it. Yeah. I remember seeing the the flyers at at college about studying abroad, and I always wanted to do it, but never had the chance. I, it's you know, obviously, you weren't studying abroad in the in the school sense. Mm. You were working abroad. I'm really curious. Did anything specifically make you want to do the teaching other than it was a good opportunity recommended by your friend? I actually resisted teaching for a long time. So the university that I went to, it's called Mary Immaculate College in Ireland. Now I went there to do communications as part of my arts degree. It's very well known for being um, a university that specializes in bachelor of education and primary school teachers so much so I think there was around five or six hundred primary school teachers in my year and we were arts and I think there was around 160 of us so that that just shows the difference and no joke about 90% of people who did my course who did the arts course are now teachers you can become a primary school teacher or a secondary school teacher 
Um, and I vowed, I was like, I'm not becoming a teacher. I did my postgrad in public relations and event management. Everybody else would have done their postgrads in primary school teaching or done the HDIP, which is secondary school teaching. I was one of the few who didn't. I held out to my late, to my late 20s. And then it was just that whole thing of like, I don't want to work in a bar. I don't want to work in a restaurant. And my friend Rachel had said that her friend did CELTA and she was, she could travel anywhere. Like she was teaching all over like Asia. She was, you know, she was landed in Australia. She'd get a job. So I think the practical side of my brain kind of kicked in and I was like, yeah, okay, I'll do this. But I remember the night before, um, I was thinking, what am I doing? Like, am, am I doing the right thing here? And I was like, look, it's a month. Do it. But it was one of the first times I think I really had it like, oh, I don't know if, I don't know if this is the right thing now or not. But the irony is I loved it and I was really, really good at it. And I did it in New Zealand for about two years. And then when I came back to Ireland, I taught in Dublin for a while. I taught in Cork for a while. And then I actually gave, um, one to one tuition to exam students then privately then after that. Oh, wow. How about that? total relocation obviously you you said you had some friends you stayed with you started handing out your resume Mm -hmm. what advice would you have for other people who decide to make a big relocation for work like different country any tips for success there that that you would pass on i think you could you should do a bit of research like what what are the legal requirements um around that and if you were like me if you were like on a one-year working holiday visa or whatever like what are you what legally are you allowed to do and like you know what are you not allowed to do I'd say you'd have to kind of just be patient and like you have you have to hustle like I mean I printed out 15-20 copies of my resume and made a list of schools and over about three days was literally walking around, like knocking on doors, handing in the resume. Just how does it work over there? So like, you know, if you were trying to get like um, an office-based job, what are the big job boards, you know, the big recruitment boards that you could be using or sorry, the recruitment websites, let's say monster.ie or whatever. Can you register with a few recruiters? And I suppose what are the transferable skills, you know, that from your country that will work and will be recognized in another country. So, for example, I just had to say CELTA, you know, I had that qualification and I got quite a high grade in it. So all of a sudden that kind of helped me um, stand out a lot more as well. And for you, travel was something that was really intriguing and something you thought you would enjoy. Had you done any traveling before that or just always wanted to? Well, would you believe I actually was on um, a college exchange in my third year of university and I studied in Houston, Texas for oh, um, wow. <laughs> for six months, the University of St. Thomas. Um, so that that was probably one of my first big stints uh, away from home and just being immersed like in another culture. And before that, like we're very lucky. We live in Ireland, you know, in Europe. Um, my parents would have brought us on camping holidays, so we would have got the ferry to France. And then my dad would, for three weeks, we would have camped and, and drove around Europe. So France, over into Germany, Austria, Switzerland, Italy, and then back to France, you know, to get the ferry. 
yeah, like we, we're very lucky. Like we can jump on a plane and and go to Spain, you know, for a week. Um, but I think when I went to went to uh, Houston, Texas, that was probably that was my longest time away. That was me like living somewhere else, you know, for six months. This sounds very similar to another guest we had on the show, Ashley Connell. She ended up telling her manager that she wanted to travel and go abroad. And she actually went to London to help start one of the offices for the specific company she worked for. Mm. So it, it sounds like you have a little bit similar story, except in your case, you, you took everything you owned almost and and went for it. I went across the other side of the world, like New Zealand, Ireland are, are yeah. practically diametrically like, you know, I used to laugh at New Zealand. I was like, if I went 10 miles one way or 10 miles the other way, I'd be closer to Ireland, <laughs> you know. That's so funny. Now you eventually boomerang back to Ireland. What, mm-hmm. what was the genesis of that? So I think, I think when I was away, you, you're always feeling it, it's, it's quite transient, you know, unless you you put down mega roots you know unless you buy somewhere or you know you let's say you marry somebody like from that country um Mm -hmm. but I always knew that that it wasn't it was never going to be a long-term thing and it is quite far away like from home um like when when I had to fly I mean I went from Cork to London London to LA so I was in LA for three nights and then LA to New Zealand so that's like two kind of 12 hour flights basically so it is it's it's a it's a long way away um and it's not cheap to just hop planes like that no that it is not yes that's the the redundancy money or the fundundancy as it became known as and also I was I volunteered as a media assistant for the rugby world cups that was in Auckland um that's partly why I stayed like for the second year oh, that's cool yeah and that was a goal of mine I was like you know what I'm gonna volunteer for the third biggest sporting event in the world but it's not going to be it's going to be something that's perfect for me. So like I had my heart set on media assistant and it took a year from, from when I applied online to when I actually rocked up, as they say, um, it was a whole 12 months. So I was a media assistant, um, and was very lucky. There weren't that many of us. So we were kind of supporting, I think there was 300 journalists and 250 photo journalists. Um, so we would be in the press center. We would be in the conference room. So that kind of really ignited my desire to to return to work in public relations because that was my postgrad after college and I had spent a bit of time in that and um yeah I just felt you know I was I think I had turned 30 and I was just like I'm ready now ready for the next chapter go home and and I was convinced that I was going to get like a top notch job in public relations but little did I know that digital marketing had exploded in the time that I had been away and when I got back there was people that I had done my postgrad with who were who were kind of moving up in their careers in PR agencies and they were all going back to study um, digital marketing getting certificates getting diplomas in digital marketing and I didn't have anything like that so the fact that the rugby world cup was impressive but like, I didn't know how to use Facebook, like for business purposes. That was the big thing that kept coming up again and again. You you, you don't really know. You've never run Twitter campaigns. You've never run Facebook campaigns. So then um, 
I had to go back, back to college. And I was very, very, very lucky because the government had brought out these um, courses for highly um, needed skills. And digital marketing, thankfully, was one of those. So I got a free postgrad course in my local university in um, creative digital marketing. Nice. I have to ask, were you a rugby fan going into working on the Rugby World Cup? I was. I mean, I'm I'm from Cork. I'm from Munster. So we would have like, you know, a, a big rugby legacy. And in, in well, I was going to say in Ireland, but we have this um, yearly rugby competition called the Six Nations, where um, you're nodding your head. So where Ireland, England, Wales, Scotland... Um, France and Italy compete every year um, in this this competition every springtime. So yes, I I was, and it's impossible to live in Auckland in New Zealand and not become a rugby fan. Let's say a bigger rugby well, fan. I was I was thinking it would have been really difficult to do that job if you weren't a rugby fan, or because you'd have to understand the rules and all that stuff if you didn't already know them. Ah, would you know, being in, in the media center was, was really easy. So like we sit behind a desk. So when you came in, we'd be there. And mostly it was like journalists would come up to you and they'd say, sorry, do you have the Wi-Fi code? And you have a piece of paper going, here you are. And then if they came back and said the Wi-Fi didn't work, you just point them over to, um, support, IT support. And then the, the team, when the team was announced, you just had to wait beside the printer and it would spit out like 500 copies of the team sheet. And old school, you just run around. There was about five of us and we'd just be running around, <laughs> just shoving it like on into people's hands. And we had to do that at halftime if there was any team changes at halftime. And then when we went into the, the conference room, and uh, that was really cool. So basically they had a little, um, you know, the little, they'd have a translator. And so some people who, who didn't speak a native English, they just put a little thing in their ear and they would just put it onto the channel, like a little radio, and they'd get the translation. And we just had to collect them afterwards. So that was it, you know, but it was great. It's really good fun. Yeah. Sounds like a great experience. Yeah. You did that. You came back, went back to school to mm-hmm. gain the skills you felt you were lacking. And after you gained those skills, was digital marketing still something that excited you? Or did you decide to go in a different direction? Oh, no. Um, me and digital marketing were like two peas in a pod. Like, I loved it. I absolutely, I it, it appealed to kind of both sides of my brain. So like the real kind of, you know, logical kind of side to the brain. But also, you know, the, the creative side as well. So no, I, I loved all of it. Like, I mean, we were taught how to use Google Analytics, which I still use today. Search engine optimization. We had to create a blog and write blogs. Um, and we, we just had like a lot of experts kind of come in and people in industry come in and give us presentations. So, um, no, it was brilliant. It was, it was a great course. You mentioned blogging with the communications background. Is that something you had done on your own before then with any kind of experience or was that a new skill you had to learn? I think I'd say it was probably a new skill I had to learn. But from my pure experience, I would have been very comfortable writing press releases and and kind of articles. But with the blogging element, I suppose I wouldn't have known anything about search engine optimization, keywords, um and just kind of formatting 
of blogs, let's say in general. So that was all new. And then now, I suppose, um, after my, my teaching in New Zealand, um, my grammar had improved an awful lot. And with my creative writing as well, um, I'm, I'm a better editor, let's say. Um, so when you kind of combine all of those together and, and slap on like, you know, the, the marketing element to it, you know, always be selling, always be closing. Yeah, it's probably one of my favorite things that I like to do now. We've had a lot of folks on the show who have started a personal blog and that actually led them to opportunities down the road, made them a better communicator. Do you have any advice for folks who may want to write a little bit more on the side like that? Yeah. So when I'm, when I'm doing like creative writing workshops and I am a student, the big piece of of advice that they always give to us is if you want to become a better writer, you have to read more. So, So that's probably one of the best ways that you learn. And I think for anybody who wants to blog, perhaps, you know, do your research. So, you know, type in whatever, whatever kind of area whatever kind of topics you want to write about like pop them into google and and maybe well they say the best place to hide a dead body on google is on page two because nobody goes beyond page one so go beyond page one like go to page two go to page three and just read you know check out who your competitors are check out who's writing what but what do you like you know what are you gravitating towards but crucially what don't you like and and why not? So if you, if you start reading a blog and you can't get beyond like the second or third paragraph, analyze it and just really ask yourself, like, why is this not engaging me? What is it? And what you could do is you could print it out personally as an example for you of like, I don't like this style, can't understand it. It's kind of boring. The title said five top tips, but like, where are the top tips? They're kind of buried in the blog somewhere. So I think that would be kind of one of the, for me, one of the biggest things. And, and that's what I would do because it's, it's quite analytical. Um, and, and you're just kind of getting a feel for kind of discovering your own tone. And also, like, why are you writing the blog? Like, what do you want somebody to get out of it? Is it like a real practical thing? Are you trying to teach somebody five things? Or is it more of a thought opinion piece? And both of them are fine, but we write for the reader. You know, you write for the the recipient. So what do you want them to come away with afterwards? And it doesn't always have to be like five things to do, five things not to. It doesn't have to be like that at all. It could be more anecdotal. But as long as you're kind of okay with that and you know what you're doing that in advance, go for it. Does all the training in communications and English, does that make you more of a perfectionist in your writing? I'm just curious. Um, I, I think it used to. But then when I started working for myself, um, I had to adopt the mantra of good enough is good enough uh, because there's only so many hours in the day. However, in this role, let's say, you know, if I'm reviewing somebody's blog and maybe it's the first blog that they're kind of putting out there because I deliver training. I create a training for like a pilot group as well. And I suppose it's kind of up to me to make sure that the best piece of work goes out there for them because their name is on it, but also I suppose for VMware as well. Um, but no, I've, I've kind of, I've kind of rode back a lot on stuff. I suppose I'm just a bit more comfortable now in, in, in knowing a good piece from like being overly critical, being, 
you know, overly analytical as well. And at the end of the day, it's the advice or it's the content of the piece and it's the author's tone as well that has to come across. Yeah, for those who have trouble getting started with blogging or something like that, don't let perfectionism cripple you because it can. It definitely can. Been there. Good enough is good enough. Good enough is good enough. And I say that in the training, you know, to the pilot group. We, we, I try and make it like as easy for them as possible. And I just say, sometimes what I'll do is I'll have an idea and I'll just bullet point it. I might have 20 bullet points in a page and it's kind of like, I just have to get everything down on the page and then I'll go back and I'll edit. So, um, Brené Brown has, has a phrase. Well, it's S, SFT. So I won't say what the S is, but it's, it me, it's another word for like terrible, terrible first draft. Um, so that's what I say. It's just like word vomit, you know, your first draft, it's just extracting whatever you have in your head and you're putting it down on the page and you'll never publish your first draft because your first draft is just you kind of getting your thoughts in order and saying like, what is it that I want to say? But for me, that's the best thing. So if you, if you just put all your thoughts down on paper and you send it over to me and you're like, I'm not sure, but this is it. And then I kind of cast my eye over it and I can give a few pointers and we go back and forth for a little while and then when both of us are happy um it goes out that's more kind of a a thought piece whereas my advice to to anybody writing a blog for the first time would be like three top things or five top things because you have a number you have five points five bullet points three bullet points you have a little intro paragraph a little summary paragraph and that's just the easiest way actually to get started yeah, and it could be a how-to as well. In technology, you might be showing how to install something, configure something. Absolutely. It makes a lot of sense. Yeah, and it's they're sense. actually some of the most searched. You know, when, when I, I looked at the search queries, like for our blog site, and I was, you know, Google Search Console, you download your top 1,000 search queries, and then I filtered them alphabetically, and I went to all the how-tos. Because I'm like, this is amazing. This is literally like candidates saying, um, how, how to, how do I do this? How do I do that? Or people kind of want to know more about like the sales path, you know, like what is a principal engineer or what's the, um, what's the career path of a principal engineer? And our whole TA team know this stuff inside out. So, um, they're experts in, in that and it's just helping them kind of with the tool that is a blog to try and get that out there as well. say before meeting Louise I didn't really know what talent marketing was or really that it was a thing I thought it was interesting to hear about where that fits in the overall hiring process I really like the fact that we're putting the 30 60 90 day expectations for success in job descriptions and my hope is that job descriptions are becoming more like that across the industry more accessible and a truer picture of what is expected of the candidate because that's really what it's about whether it's VMware or some other com company you want to make sure that when you're looking at a job description it really tells you 
What's expected of you if you decide to apply and accept this role? I can't imagine what it would be like to take a one-way flight to New Zealand to start a new career, but that's exactly what Louise did. She said she was hesitant about going into teaching, even though a lot of her peers were doing that, and she had done the post-grad work in public relations and events management, but she ended up loving it and was really, really good at it. I like the fact that Louise chose to do the more intense training courses and certifications to prep for that teaching experience, the CELTA set of training and certifications. And I think that really helped her get a leg up on the competition. It was really cool to see that she got to be part of the Rugby World Cup, an extremely large event. And that is what ignited her desire to work in public relations, something she had studied a bit in college. When she went to go and interview after returning from New Zealand, she kept getting feedback. I really like the fact that Louise decided to do something about the feedback, to act on it, because she could control that, so she got herself educated to try and fill that gap. The advice in this episode for the aspiring blogger I think is really good and different from what we've heard from others. This is from a marketer's perspective. She says to find your tone and understand why you're writing the blog and think about what you would want someone else to get out of it. A lot of people write blogs so that it takes them to the next level. Some people write them because they really enjoy it. Some people write them because they're filling a gap that isn't there in documentation. Some people just do it for fun. So if you're going to do it, it's definitely a way to stand out with employers, but think about the why behind it. If you were reading it, what would you want to get out of it? If you enjoyed part one, don't miss part two next week. We're going to talk about what happened after Louise got that education and filled her knowledge gap back in Ireland and where she went from there. It's a great story, and I'm really excited for it. Just a reminder again, we want people to subscribe and give us a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. We want to know if we're being helpful and are always looking for interesting questions to ponder. We're collectively on Twitter, at NerdJourney. Farewell, listeners. Tune in next time as the journey continues. I'm Nick Cordy at NetworkNerd underscore, flying solo for now. For my buddy John White at VJourneyman, signing off.